Let's open the Scriptures this morning to the book of Isaiah in the first place. A couple of passages from Isaiah and then a passage from Amos chapter 9. We'll begin in Isaiah chapter 9, page 729 in the Pew Bible, 729. These passages help us with some of the background to what's going on in our text in John's Gospel chapter 2, where the Lord Jesus changes water into wine, and He does that in Cana of Galilee. So here in Isaiah 9, we read about Galilee and some of its significance. We'll read the first seven verses. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumults and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We turn now to chapter 25, where the prophet, through the Spirit, gives us another vision or at least a prophecy of the new age that's coming, the age that our Lord Jesus Christ brought in. And I draw your attention to what is said here about the image of wine, feasting and wine. 25 verse 1, O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will praise Your name, for You have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. From there we'll go to Amos chapter 9, page 979, 979 in the Pew Bible, Amos chapter 9. And we'll read the verses 11 through 15. And Amos also brings a prophecy about the coming age. And here, too, wine and feasting is, are mentioned. Verse 11, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. We'll be focusing on chapter 2, the first 12 verses. I would like to, however, read a few verses from chapter 1 to refresh us with the, the wider context and the connections between the opening verses of this chapter right into chapter 2. So we're going to read chapter 1, the verses 14 through 18. And then hopefully we'll see the connection to our text in chapter 2. Verse, John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. 
And then we start to see the word make the Father known here in chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars, water jars there, for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So far, our text. <clears throat> In response we, to the preaching, we'll sing um, the words from Isaiah 9 about the light shining in darkness. As we have that in hymn 19, hymn 19 stanzas 1 through 4. Holy and loved church of our Lord Jesus Christ, what purpose does changing water into wine actually serve? There are other questions about our text, but that one is probably the single largest question. Why did Jesus take time to turn ordinary water into very fine wine? Doesn't this seem out of character for Christ? If you think about His other miracles, every other miracle that He performed, they had to do with healing the sick, casting out demons, raising people from the dead. The other miracles gave help to seriously hurting people. But here, all Jesus did, it seems, was help the opportunity, give opportunity to drink more wine and have more fun. I mean, does that really line up? Does that really jibe with Christ's other miracles? We also know Jesus from John's gospel as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. We saw that in chapter 1. That was a most sober, serious task. We know him elsewhere in Scripture as the man of sorrows, the man of sorrows who came to bear our curse and shame. 
giving his entire life over to that suffering until it came to a climax on the cross when the wrath of God pressed out of him his very life. I mean, what is the man of sorrows doing at a party in Cana of Galilee? Jesus said of himself on a later occasion that unlike the birds of the air who have their nests and foxes who have their dens to lie down in, the Son of Man, he said, has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus, the Son of Man, was a, a, a poor individual, a man of poverty, a man of simplicity, a man who lived hand to mouth. Why would he concern himself with the very small matter of a beverage shortage by miraculously turning water into wine. Why? Well, because the Son of Man is also the Son of God who came to earth to show us His glory, to show us the light of life that He shines into our darkness. We hope to unpack that together as I bring you this word of the Lord. Jesus begins to reveal His glory to His disciples. We'll see that He shines or He lets His light shine in darkness and that by doing so, reality replaces shadow. Well, John, the gospel writer, starts off our text with a date, with a location and an event stamp. He says... Verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. On the third day of what exactly? Well, when you start trying to track what John is referring to, because there's a count going on, you go back to chapter 1, you start to see that John the gospel writer marks out, counts out a series of days, starting in verse 29. Chapter 1, the next day he, John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him. And there's a series of these next days. So if we start counting at verse 1, verse 29, that would be day 2. The previous day is when John the Baptist was speaking with the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem. So that's chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. Day two comes when John sees Jesus coming toward him and announces that this is the Lamb of God. Then you go to verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with his disciples, so that's day number three. And a little further, verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. That's day number four. So, the gospel writer deliberately, and he marks this out clearly, records events on four consecutive days. And now in our text, he continues the sequence, only it's now three days later, he tells us. And you probably know that in the Jewish reckoning of days, they always include the day on which you start counting. So the wedding in Cana ends up being on day six. What the Holy Spirit records for us in the opening chapter up until the end of chapter 2, verse 11, is a six-day period 
in the earliest days of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So, opening verses of John's Gospel, we have six days of divine activity. Does that ring any bells? Six days of God being busy, first through His servant John, then through His Son Jesus, that kind of makes you think of the first six days of creation, doesn't it? Could there be a connection, some kind of illusion here? Well, I think the connection and illusion is quite strong because John tells us in verse 1 of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, those words are unmistakably a recollection of Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning. So you put all of this together and it seems very clear that John, the gospel writer, wants us to see a parallel between God's first creation when He then created all that now exists by the power of His Word. Remember, He spoke and it came to be. And this new creation, or you could say this recreation of the world through the sending of the Word, the Word in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. John wants us to compare, to think about the connections. We're meant to think of God's work through Jesus as being just as powerful, just as groundbreaking, just as incredible and good and gracious and game-changing as God's first work of creation. Think about what happened there in Genesis 1. God's original creation by the Word, it brought light into darkness. And it created life where there was no life. And now the Word which has become flesh, He has come, it says in John 1, to shine light into the darkness, the spiritual darkness of mankind, and produce life where there was only death. So it's John, the gospel writer's way of saying, we've got a new thing going on, a new beginning from the hand of God in the ministry of Jesus. And then we find on day six, we find Jesus where? We find Him at a wedding. Is that not another parallel to Genesis 1 and 2? On that original day six, woman was created out of man's rib. And she was brought to the man, and the two were united in holy wedlock. In other words, the world's first marriage took place on the sixth day of creation. Can it really be a coincidence that the Son of God, the Word, is found at a wedding feast precisely on day six here in John's opening chapter of the gospel? I don't think that's a coincidence, beloved. I think there's a strong connection. And this wedding is being held in Cana of Galilee. This also is not haphazard or random. John mentions it a second time in verse 11 as a reflection on what has just taken place. 
Verse 11, this, the first of Jesus' signs, he did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Now, we hear the word Cana, or we're familiar with the word Cana, because we're familiar with this particular miracle. But did you know that outside of John's gospel, the name Cana does not appear in Scripture? We don't even know much about this Cana. We know it was a small village. We know it was very likely several miles north of Nazareth. But to this day, its precise location is unknown. But whenever John mentions it in his gospel, he always mentions it as part of the larger region of Galilee. John even refers back to this very event later in chapter 4 of this gospel, verse 46. So, he, Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he made, water, made the water wine. And at the end of that healing story in John chapter 4, we read, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So, Cana is the village, but the significance here is not so much the village, but the area known as Galilee. But why stress that Jesus did this wedding miracle in Galilee? Well, brothers and sisters, for this reason, because the deeper the darkness, the brighter the light shines. And that's what Galilee was a region known for its spiritual darkness. Jesus does most of His work here in Galilee. Galilee was the northern part of the land of Israel. It was above Samaria. Samaria is kind of sandwiched in between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. And you know that the Samaritans already were a people that were despised by the Jews. They were a mixed race, part Jew, part Gentile. Now, Jesus certainly does make visits to Jerusalem for the major feasts, and John's gospel covers much of those uh, visits to Jerusalem. But in terms of where Jesus actually spent most of his time and did most of his ministry and his preaching, it was in the north, in that area that Isaiah calls in chapter 9, Galilee of the Gentiles. It was already known then as that. That area has a, Galilee has a long history of of being known for weakness and vulnerability and spiritual poverty. If you think back to when Canaan was conquered in Joshua's day, then you you would remember or you would find in Joshua's account a number of the original Canaanites actually survived up there in the north in Galilee. They couldn't be pushed out. We read in the book of Joshua So remnants of paganism always remained up there. Later in history, when hostile neighbors to the north, like Syria, and later on the empire of Assyria, when they would attack, they would inevitably attack from the north, and guess what? The first area they hit was Galilee. So this region had often been plundered by enemies, its Jewish people afflicted and even dragged away into exile, put all of this together, and then by Jesus' day, this whole area was thought to be a spiritual mess, like a spiritual dump. 
the part of Israel with the least dedication to the Jewish faith, a region where the Gentiles had a lot of influence. And for all of those reasons, the leaders in Jerusalem looked down. They despised Galilee. We have evidence of that later in John's Gospel, chapter 7. The, the leaders in Jerusalem, they even insult one of their own numbers, Nicodemus. Nicodemus asks a question about this Jesus. And because he seems to be defending Jesus, the, the Pharisees turn on Nicodemus and they, they say to him derisively, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Galilee is that, that backwater place that no Jew wanted to be from. So, Jesus, the Word made flesh, deliberately comes to Galilee to show, says verse 11, to show a sign. And we have to talk about that for a minute. A sign of what? There's been some question about what John, the gospel writer, means by sign and how many signs he records in this gospel. Here he speaks of the first sign. And later in chapter 4, verse 5, he speaks of the second sign done in Galilee. But after that, John doesn't count them anymore. Some people have gone through John's gospel and have identified what they think are seven distinct signs. And they think that John has arranged his gospel according to those seven signs, or at least a portion of his gospel. But when you really look at what John writes in his gospel, he does not mark out more than two of those signs by number. And those two are the ones done in Galilee. They're the ones that get specifically highlighted, but when it comes to Jesus' other signs done in Jerusalem or in other places, the gospel writer just refers to them in the plural, and he often refers to them in passing. He doesn't number them. Well, what then is meant by Jesus doing a sign? Well, simply put, in this context, it refers to Jesus doing a miracle, a mighty act of divine power that no mere human could do. And what is the purpose of a sign? Well, in John's gospel in particular, that's the stress he lays on it. Its number one purpose is to prove that the one doing the miracle has been sent from God so that those who observe the miracle know that the person doing the miracle is an agent of the Lord. Now, the miracle as a sign can do more than that. It can and often does contain a message about the kind of work, the kind of salvation that the agent of God or the, the servant of God is bringing. But the first order of business was to offer proof of authorization. Anybody can say, God has sent me. Anybody can claim that, Jesus, uh, that He is the Son of God from heaven, like Jesus was claiming. But how can anybody trust this claim? Jesus says, look at the works that I do. That's His word for it. And John, the Gospel writer, says, look at the signs Jesus performed. Look at the miracles He performed. They authenticate His claim to be the Son of God. Signs then verify 
that the one doing them is the real McCoy. So let's put all of this together. Here we've got Jesus. The Word, right? Eternal God. He was with God. He was God. The Word made flesh. The light of the world. He comes to earth to begin His ministry among His people. And immediately He goes to the darkest of darkest places to that Galilee region. So what we have in our our text is a a demonstration of what John told us in verse 14 of chapter 1. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, he, we saw Him. He came down among us. Who's the us? Well, of course, it's the Israelites, but it, it's representative of all humanity. Jesus came to the us the average, ordinary, even the scorned. That's what He was doing in Galilee. Jesus, the Word, is not afraid to go to the darkest places. He doesn't hesitate to go to the despised areas of the world or to the outcasts or the shunned of society. Jesus is not afraid to enter your life or mine your darkness or mine, your mess or mine with all of its sin and all of its shame. He doesn't hesitate to go and go to a poor and wretched sinner like me with a heart that by nature is black because He comes to shine a light on it. A light on all of us sinners He enters our Galilee. He enters the nitty-gritty of our lives, our marriages and families, and He turns the water into wine. Jesus' first stop in His ministry with new fledgling disciples in tow was at this ordinary marriage feast in backwater Galilee in order to renew the marriage feast which was about to come to an end in shame. That was at stake here. A wedding feast in this culture was a a special thing. It's a special thing in our culture, but it was even more so for the Jews. They would spend several days, even up to a week, celebrating it. And it was a culture that lived by honor and shame. As a groom and bride preparing for your wedding guests, your honor was to provide adequately for them so that the celebration could be all that it should be and that there would be enough for the duration of the feast. But it would be your shame if you would have planned poorly and ran out of the festive wine before the end of the feast. Now, in our culture, if something like that happened, there might be some, some sense of embarrassment about it, and, and we probably could laugh that off and it would be easily forgotten, but in Jesus' time, that was serious business in that culture. It was a matter of disgrace. You were, you were seen to be disgracing your guests if you didn't provide sufficient wine for them. 
And that would be a matter of your public shame for the bride and the groom. That young married couple would would never live that down. And so Jesus' miracle, the very first sign, saves this couple from shame and actually raises up their dignity because when the master of ceremonies tastes of that wine that has been brought to him by the servants and he doesn't know where it comes from, he says, you have kept the good wine until now. That's what Jesus does. This couple, they didn't even realize it, actually. At this point, they were unaware of the problem. The master of ceremonies was unaware of the problem. And yet, there was a major problem for them right on their doorstep. And they had nothing. And from their nothing, this couple and their guests receive the best wine they've ever tasted. And there's no shame to the couple. This is an indicator of what Jesus does. This is the kind of saving work He does. He restores what is broken right in the ordinary routines of life. That's what He came for. Healing where there is hurting. Removal of shame. Though He is God and high and holy, yet He comes right down into our living rooms, into our bedrooms and our kitchens and our banqueting halls and wedding feasts, and He announces, I have good wine to give. Come, take and drink free of charge and enter into the joy of my salvation." For as He shines light into our darkness, we begin to see reality replacing shadows. And indeed, it is His light that shines here, the light of the Word, the light of the divine Son of Man upon whom the angels ascend and descend, It's His light and not anybody else's light. Also not His mother's light. Maybe you noticed how Jesus' mother is mentioned here and even highlighted by the writer in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Notice that her name is not mentioned Everybody knows her name is Mary, but John does not mention her name, not here or anywhere else in his gospel. Yet she's described four times in these 12 verses as his mother. So it's a mother-son issue that's part of this text. And she quickly becomes the focus in the early part of the story for she becomes aware of the wine shortage and she thinks to tell Jesus about that. Verse 3. For some reason, Mary seems to have a stake in this wedding reception and in, in the potential shame involved. She seems to see it coming. Perhaps this is a wedding of a relative. Whatever the case, the mother evidently thinks that her son can solve the problem. And you know, Mary knew a fair 
bit, didn't she, about her son. She remembers all that was told her by the angel Gabriel. You recall from Luke's gospel how she pondered all these things in her heart. She remembers the prophecy given by Gabriel. She remembers what cousin Elizabeth said when she went to visit Elizabeth. She remembers what happened at age 12 when her son was 12 years of old in the temple and all that he said to her and Joseph then. She also by now would have been hearing the testimony of John the Baptist because that would have been getting around. John who had said and publicly identified her son as the Christ. And so at this wedding feast, she comes to him where this problem is, has developed and she she presents him with it. She prompts her son. It's a nudge to, to get him to act. Here's an opportunity, son. Go about your work. But Jesus doesn't go in for the nudge, does he? Instead, he reacts fairly sharply. And although he is polite about it, he nevertheless offers his mother a rebuke. Literally, he says, and I translate verse 4 literally, what is to you and to me, woman? What is to you and to me, woman? It's an expression in the Hebrew language that's hard to translate into English. We find it elsewhere in Scripture a number of times. And in every case, it's used to communicate to the other party that he or she is on the opposite side of the fence. It's like saying to somebody, what do we have in common? Your intentions are not my intentions. So stand down. Back off. Basically, Jesus is communicating to his mother, in this matter, the matter of my being the Christ, you have nothing to say to me. And he calls her woman, not mother. He's not being disrespectful. But it's also definitely not a warm and intimate address. It's an address that puts some distance between him and his mother because Jesus is much more than her physical son. He is her Lord and Savior. He is her God. And here at the beginning of his official ministry, she needs to recognize that and make a turn. He is the eternal Word whose task is to reveal His glory by revealing the Father to the world. And His earthly mother can have no part in that work. This is God's work, God's work alone. So Mary has to move in her thinking and in her position. She has to move away from that role of honorable parent to the role of devoted disciple. And you know, she makes that transition. We find her in Acts chapter 1. We find her among the disciples, a Christian, a follower 
of the Lord. God's work through Jesus is to fulfill His ancient promises and reveal the fullness of grace and truth. That's what John had written in verses 14 through 18, chapter 1. We saw that in an earlier sermon that God, through Moses already, had given grace. You remember that? Israel had received a lot of grace and gracious things from the hand of their God. God had chosen to dwell among them in the tabernacle right there above the mercy seat. They were a group of sinners, but God said, I'm going to come and live among you. That's grace. Oh, and by the way, you can come and speak to me. We can have a relationship because I've set up a series of sacrifices so that your sins will be taken away. Offer your sacrifice on the altar of burnt offering. The priest will offer a prayer for you at the altar of incense, and then we can talk, we can dialogue, we can interchange in fellowship. So the tabernacle was a grace-filled thing in its day, but at the same time, it was a promise of something better to come of a time when God would freely commune with His people without sin. All those sacrifices, all those rituals, all those rites in the law of Moses given by God, those were shadows. Those were pointers pointing forward to the promised Messiah who would be the Lamb of God, as John announced, who would bring that final sacrifice who would perform the final act of cleansing, who would rip the curtain from top to bottom so that God could come forth from His sanctuary and the people could come forward to meet Him and they could live together in peace. And this is what Jesus signifies with this miracle, the beginning of that new age. He's saying the shadows are becoming reality starting today. How does he do that? Well, the problem that he encounters is a shortage of wine. Now, being Almighty God as Jesus is and was, could have solved, he could have solved that problem in a number of different ways. Jesus could have spoken a word and sent the servants back to the original wine containers because they must have been hanging around somewhere. He could have said, well, go check the wine containers now and They could have been refilled with wine. I mean, the Lord Jesus later on multiplied bread and fish, right? Just out of thin air, so to speak. So he had that power, and that might well have been the expected solution. Oh, the wine is empty. Let's let's refill the wine containers. But that's not what he does. He could have also arranged to do what he later did at the Last Supper. You remember when you read those accounts of the Last Supper, Jesus had a number of things miraculously arranged in an orderly way so that the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper could be there. There was an upper room prepared. Well, the Lord could have arranged for hundreds of liters of wine to be available at the rich neighbor next door and to arrive at just the right time here at this wedding feast. Yet, of of all the ways that Jesus had available to Him, He chooses to turn water into wine. Why would He do that? 
And this is not just water that was used for drinking. This was actually water for purification purposes. We read that in verse 6. And that's where we find the significance and the reason. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. So these would have been large containers, 20 to 30 gallons uh, per. So there would have been lots of uh, occasion to fill them with water. And if you go back into the law of Moses, you find that many times the people had to be cleansed with water. It was a ritual cleansing. It was a a ceremonial cleansing so that they could then approach God at the tabernacle. For example, if you touched someone or something that was unclean, you had to bathe and then you had to wait till evening and then you, you were considered clean again. The priests, as a matter of course, always had to wash their hands and feet before they went into the tabernacle. And by Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders, they had expanded this washing of purification to many other such occasions, such as washing your hands before you eat a meal. That was why it was common to have these large jars on hand filled with water at the beginning of the feast for a large social gathering. People would all have their hands washed. A servant would pour water over them before they went in to eat. So, symbolically, you see, these six stone jars, they represented the law of Moses. They represented all those shadows. And what God had given through Moses, that was good. It was temporary, and it was incomplete, and itself was powerless. You know, mere water cannot make a man pure in God's eyes. A death of an animal can't make a man sinless in God's eyes, but the Son of God can do those things. He's the reality. Jesus, as Messiah, is far greater than Moses, and the salvation Jesus brings is a fulfillment of what is promised in all those laws and rituals and ceremonies in the, in the laws of Moses. Jesus is the reality. The shadows can now move into the background. The water of purification is no longer needed. That's why Jesus is replacing it with wine. The Son of God is on hand now. He's come to once and for all shed His blood and permanently wash away our guilt. So we don't need the water for purification anymore. Jesus brings wine He brings the wine of celebration at the dawn of a new era. And He does so at a wedding feast because all of this is is the touch, the, the first blush of the great reality that the Messiah brings. That's what Isaiah was talking about in chapter 25, which we read. It's a prophecy of the future, and Jesus is bringing that future. Isaiah wrote, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And Amos says the same thing. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. Fine wine, and lots of it, was a 
marker of the incoming of the new age, the start of the redemption promised long ago by God and now about to start or at the starting line with Jesus in Galilee. This is the world's light shining into the darkness. This is the glory of God the Son who reveals it to His disciples at a simple marriage feast in Galilee. And they believed, says our text, verse 11. This miracle, even though it was done at a wedding, was really only semi-public. Most of the guests knew nothing about it, not even the master of ceremonies or the bride and the groom. Maybe they found out later, maybe not. Just some nameless servants were told for sure and a handful of fledgling followers But then John tells us, verse 11, and his disciples, they believed in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Changer of water into wine. Fulfiller of ancient promises. And Jesus, the actual substance, the actual reality to which all those shadows of the old covenant were pointing and for what the godly had been waiting for for all those years. For if you believe that Jesus has replaced the water of purification with the wine of celebration by the means of His own death and resurrection then His joy is yours already today. You can experience the joy of the forgiveness of all your sins washed away in the blood of Jesus. Your wounds are then being healed by Christ already now. He comes to you in your Galilee, in your darkness, in your shame. And He shines the light of forgiveness, renewal, reconciliation, restoration. Your salvation has started. And one day soon when our Lord Jesus returns, the blossom that we have now, it will turn into full bloom. Amen.